I actually asked Sarah to do that song for us today because it's the title of my message. <laughs> do you hear what I hear? <laughs> In the song, a night wind speaks to a little lamb and says, do you see what I see? Which we understand to be the star of Bethlehem, which was to guide the wise men to the Christ child. Then a little lamb says to the shepherd boy, do you hear what I hear? And we understand that he's referring to the host of angels that serenaded Joseph, Mary, and Jesus on the night of his birth. And also to the angel who announced to the shepherds in their fields the birth of the Christ child and gave them guidance on how to find and recognize him. Then the shepherd boy speaks to a king and he asks, do you know what I know? And the boy proceeds to tell the king what we recognize as the birth of the Christ child. And then he guides him on how to properly worship him with silver and gold. Now the last verse doesn't stay within the biblical narrative of events surrounding the nativity. The king in the song tells everyone to pray for peace. And that's not exactly what King Herod had in mind. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> the songwriters Noel Regne and Gloria Shane, one of which was a Jew and the other was a non-practicing Catholic, wrote this song in 1962 during the Cuban Missile Crisis. At that time in our nation's history, the USSR was in the process of building nuclear weapons facilities in Cuba that would have been able to completely destroy the United States with ease. So it was the desires of the authors at that time that people everywhere would indeed pray for peace and avoid war. Noel, which is actually a glorious husband, he had been in World War II and more than anything else in the world, didn't want another one. So that's why the song says, people everywhere, please pray for peace. So this song wasn't actually written to point people to Christ, oddly enough. <laughs> it was actually written as a political statement disguised as a Christmas song. Why would they do that? <laughs> well, a record producer asked them to write a Christmas song for a B-side of a 45 record. For those who don't know, 45 records are very small, and you had a hit release on one side and a no-nothing song on the other. So they agreed to do this. They didn't count on it becoming a hit song. Nobody did. But it sold more than 250,000 copies in the first week it was released. The following year, Bing Crosby covered it, and it sold over a million copies in one year. Seems like it's a very popular song. <laughs> it has a message that everybody needs. Now, I bring this song up because of the title. Do you hear what I hear? In this song, the wind speaks, a lamb speaks, angels speak, a shepherd speaks, a king speaks, and finally, the birth of a child speaks. And I'm just very touched by this word. So I apologize for this. <laughs> because I know what the end is. <laughs> and you don't. <laughs> and because we know what the word of God says, we recognize of what this song speaks. It speaks of the Son of God who came to bring peace between God and man. Unfortunately, the authors of this song missed the true message of Christmas, <laughs> which is that Christ himself is our peace. 
And true peace only comes from the finished works of Jesus Christ and his word to us. Most people recognize that all the parts of the nativity story are within the song because they are familiar with the written word of God and the story of the nativity. But obviously, not everything in the song speaks about what is found in the written word. So not everything we hear in the song is found in the Bible. Now, the king probably refers to any good ruler, not King Herod. <laughs> and every good ruler would desire peace and would also believe that even peace between people can only come from God. So I still like the song. Well, my point is not every voice we hear is speaking truth. Not every voice we hear is accurate, even if it's in the proper context. This morning, I want to talk to you about some of the voices that we hear inside of us. As believers, there are so many voices in this world and in our head. <laughs> and not all of them are speaking the truth of the new covenant. I'm talking about the voices of fear and guilt and shame and condemnation. All of these voices come from our feelings. And feelings actually have no brains. They just feel. <laughs> they don't know if what you're feeling is true or if what you're feeling is false. They just feel. But those feelings are based on subconscious belief systems. So when we feel something, we're actually feeling what we believe somewhere in our subconscious. That's really good to know because not everything in there is right. <laughs> I was speaking with a friend recently and we were discussing guilt and condemnation. My friend's point of view was that the voice of guilt is necessary for believers because guilt signals that you've done something wrong. And then my friend added the question, how else would we know we did something wrong? The answer that came to my mind was, God will tell us. <laughs> and without trying to make us feel guilty. Because guilt is not the teacher or the corrector of the church. The Holy Spirit is. But I understood where my friend was coming from. So I decided to do some investigation into how guilt works and why it can speak so loudly to believers. First of all, the feeling or voice of guilt is produced by violating our conscience. Not a law, our conscience. So what exactly is our conscience? According to an online dictionary, it says the conscience is an inner feeling or voice viewed as acting as a guide to the rightness or wrongness of one's behavior. So for the conscience to actually be an appropriate guide, it must be programmed with correct information as to what is actually right or wrong, good or evil, true or false. And feelings can't determine that. And unfortunately, not all the stuff in our brain is true. So our conscience can actually cause us to feel guilty when we haven't actually done anything wrong at all. Or it can cause us to feel justified when we knowingly do something we know we should not do. <laughs> we can see this truth in Romans 2, verses 14 and 15. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, so why do they have a guilty conscience, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law unto themselves, 
even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience, also bearing witness, saying amen or nay, <laughs> and their conflicting thoughts accuse and even excuse them. <laughs> Basically, this says that everyone knows the difference between right and wrong because it's written on their hearts naturally. That's why Jesus could say, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Because the truth is, nobody wants to be lied to. <laughs> Therefore, we can understand lying is wrong. It's wrong for you to lie to me. Obviously, lying is wrong. Nobody wants to have someone they love be murdered. We can therefore understand murdering somebody I love is wrong. Therefore, murder is wrong. <laughs> Nobody wants their spouse to be unfaithful to them. Therefore, we can understand that adultery is wrong. And nobody wants a thief to steal from them. Therefore, we can understand that stealing is wrong. And because all of this is true, our conscience, which has the basic innate knowledge of good and evil, will either excuse us, telling us we have a perfectly good reason for stealing or lying <laughs> or doing something else we know we shouldn't do, or it will condemn us if we do something contrary to what we believe in our heart to be good and right. In fact, every person naturally operates according to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that's because the whole world operates from that same original knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It has no life. It only has knowledge of good and evil. The difference in a person's conscience is the difference in their understanding of right and wrong or good and evil. And of course, many unbelievers have desensitized their own conscience by simply continuing to ignore it or by continuing to justify bad behavior. So when we feel guilty, it is because we believe that we have done something that we believe is wrong. And then our conscience verifies, yes, <laughs> this is wrong. You made a bad choice. <laughs> you shouldn't have done that. We get this confirmation. Our heart feels and says, see, we did something bad. <laughs> our conscience goes, yeah, yeah, you really did. <laughs> and that's when we experience the voices of guilt and shame. Everyone knows that guilt and shame feels bad. But why? Why do they feel so bad? Well, for starters, it's because we innately believe we are what we do. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I am what I do. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if we do good, then we must be good. How many people have you ever heard say, I'm a good person? Well, what makes you a good person? I do good things. I never hear somebody say, I'm bad. <laughs> How do you know? <laughs> because they do bad things. And we are usually taught from this from a very early age. Parents have known to unwittingly teach their children that their doing determines their identity, their sense of self, as either being a good little boy or girl or being a bad little boy or girl. And then their identity is directly tied to their feelings of both acceptance and approval or feelings of rejection and disapproval. They learn that what they do determines their approval or disapproval, their acceptance or their rejection. Children innately want to please their parents when they're young. 
Teenagers, not so much. <laughs> but little ones, they actually want to please mommy and daddy. They want that acceptance. But the children quickly learn to expect with good behavior comes acceptance, approval, feelings of being loved. But doing inappropriate things, disobedient things, well, that brings forth feelings of rejection. So they learn to associate what they do with who they are. Now, of course, most children, what they don't understand is that they are loved beyond measure and are deeply wanted and approved of by their parents. It's just that their little brains can't even begin to understand the value their parents place on them. They don't understand. They can't understand, at least not until they hold their own first child. When my daughter Sarah was born, my little brain, even at 20 years old, could not comprehend meeting her for the first time and instantly loving her. Instantly, I knew I would happily give my life for this little girl, but nothing in my logical understanding had any point of reference for this experience. How do you love somebody instantly the moment you meet them when they haven't said anything, they haven't done anything, they just are. <laughs> I was a bit bewildered by it. How can I love this little person so much? When I just met her, she hasn't done anything to make me love her. In fact, I should be mad. She spent three days trying to get out and breaking my tailbone. If anything, I should be mad at her. <laughs> but all I had was overwhelming love. In that moment, I also remember that my mom often told me, honey, you have no idea how much we love you. And as a kid, my sassy little brain would think, yeah, right. <laughs> and, but she was right. But until that moment, I had never experienced love from a parent's point of view. Couldn't. And love from a parent's point of view is the closest thing we have that gives us at least some understanding of the self-sacrificing love of our Heavenly Father. For most parents, their kids are without a doubt the most important things on the face of the earth. If necessary, they absolutely would lay down their lives for their kids. And God is no different. The most important things on this earth are his kids. <laughs> All of his kids. The good kids, the bad kids, the saved kids, and the unsaved kids. He loves them all the same because we're all his through creation. He owns everybody. Everybody belongs to him. That doesn't mean they know him. And then after we come to the saving knowledge of Christ, we spiritually become his kids and his heirs through the new creation experience of being born again. And then we are also his through adoption. He wants us to know we're his. <laughs> he legally adopts us and places us in Christ Jesus as sons of God so that we can rule and reign in life. He wants us to understand we are completely his. But most of the world doesn't see God this way because this isn't what they've heard about him. They've heard that he's in control of everything and that they are powerless to change anything. They've heard that he's mad at them because of their sins and failures. And if they want God to accept them, well, then they better get busy repenting in sackcloth and ashes. <laughs> They've heard that he's far away in heaven and he really can't be bothered with our problem little life. <laughs> They've heard all kinds of inaccurate and untrue things about God. 
and not just from the world. For the longest time, I didn't see God as a loving father. Much like when I was a kid, yeah, I know you love me. <laughs> I know you do. Can't say as I really see it. <laughs> I was very much like a little kid who thought I was what I did for the longest time as an adult. When I fell short of perfection, I felt guilty but not in an appropriate way. You see, there is appropriate guilt and inappropriate guilt. Appropriate guilt would be better understood as accepting responsibility for your actions. We call it maturity. <laughs> in other words, we acknowledge the truth that we have done something wrong, and then we take the responsibility to make it right if we can. We kind of see this taking of responsibility in the Old Testament guilt offering. I have it for you in the ESV, in Leviticus 6, beginning with verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, saying, If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor, hmm, there's that line, <laughs> in a matter of deposit or security, hmm, stealing thievery, <laughs> through robbery, or if he has oppressed his neighbor, or has found something lost and lied about it, Swearing falsely. Hmm, those Ten Commandments show up everywhere. <laughs> in any of all the things that these people do and sin thereby. If he has sinned and realized his guilt and will restore what he took by robbery or what he got by oppression or the deposit that was committed to him or lost the thing that he found or anything about which he has sworn falsely, he shall restore it in full and shall add a fifth to it and give it to him to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. And he shall bring to the priest as his compensation to the Lord a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord, and he shall be forgiven for any of the things that one may do or thereby become guilty. Forever, I thought, this guilt offering is a punishment. You finally realized you were wrong. Okay, now we're going to penalize you <laughs> by making you pay 20% more and, <laughs> and then restoring everything that you took. So it always sounded like a penalty to me. And I could never really understand why sin offerings and guilt offerings weren't the same thing. Because there is a guilt involved. But this guilt offering isn't because of punishment. It's because of opportunity to make things right. See, that's the whole point, is I've come to the realization what I did to you was wrong. You see, it's really hard to forgive yourself <laughs> if you don't try to make it right. That's what this is. This is an opportunity for restoration and reconciliation. This has nothing to do with punishment. It's amazing. And for us, when we do hurt somebody, even if you bump into somebody, you apologize. <laughs> Oops, sorry, wasn't watching where I was going. Trying to make it right. It's appropriate. Taking responsibility for our actions. So when we look into the Old Covenant, we are not looking for the rules to follow so that we can be forgiven of our sins. Yes, that was part of their covenant. He had to bring a separate offering for the Lord for his sin. We're simply looking at the principle that was given and seeking to understand how the principle can pertain to us. So a guilt offering included the return of what was lost and damaged to the party that was wronged, plus including an extra payment of 20% as a means of trying to make it right, make amends. 
It was never designed to be a punishment to the one who was guilty. You see, the, someone, this person decided, oh, this was wrong. I, I need to do something about this. <laughs> That's that guilty conscience. <laughs> That's the way it worked for them. With appropriate guilt, we understand that our action was wrong and that it hurt or damaged someone else. And we need to do what we can to make it right. So guilty feelings are usually associated with hurting another person in some way and then wanting to repair and restore the relationship. But feeling guilty in general isn't from God. It's almost always from our conscience. <laughs> the voice of our conscience is not the same thing as the voice of the Holy Spirit. Will God correct us? Absolutely, the second you do it. <laughs> or five seconds before when he's warning you not to do it. <laughs> yes, he doesn't speak in a harsh voice. He's not trying to punish you. He will try to warn you. He will point out that was the wrong thing to do. But he's not going to try to make you feel guilty about it. <laughs> our conscience is full of all the laws we adopted on our own, <laughs> along with all the thousands of rules in the Bible that you can come up with. It's full of everything our parents taught us, and our teachers taught us, and our coaches taught us, and our employers taught us. We have rules coming out our ears. <laughs> So when we break one of the laws in our brain, our brain tells our conscience, hey, you just did something bad. And you know what that means? It means you are bad. This is what our conscience will do to us when we fall short of perfection in our own eyes. If we do in any way, shape, or form, it will cause us to shame ourselves. It will tell us, there's really something wrong with who you are. Because why? I am what I do. Now, unfortunately, this is also what a large portion of churches do to believers. <laughs> Often they will teach them that you are what you have done. They will say things like, you have sinned, therefore you must still be a sinner. Are you sure you're saved? You must repent and be really, really sorry. Why? So that God, your Father, will accept you back and approve of you? What? <laughs> Does that sound like the gospel? The good news of God's amazing grace? <laughs> what happened to the scripture that he would never leave us or forsake us? And is that the way fathers behave? They disown you when you fall short of perfection? Is that the picture of a loving Heavenly Father who came to rescue all his kids from all the power and dominion of sin in and through the cross of his very own unique son, Jesus Christ? I don't think so. Absolutely not. God did not send his son to die on a cross because he was so mad at all of us for being so bad. <laughs> God sent his son to die on the cross because we were all, the good, the bad, the ugly, so loved. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved, sozoed 
through him. Saved, healed, delivered, protected, provided for, and made whole. God wants everybody sozoed, not condemned. I looked up the word condemn in an online dictionary, and this is what it said. <laughs> to condemn is to express an unfavorable or adverse judgment on. It means to indicate strong disapproval of, to censure, which means strong and vehement <laughs> expression of disapproval. <laughs> disapproval to the 10th degree. <laughs> it means to pronounce to be guilty and to sentence to punishment. <laughs> this is what we do to ourselves. This scripture tells us that God is not interested in doing any of this. He wants us to know his approval of us, of who we are and who he created us to be. Our Heavenly Father will never condemn us. He will never strongly disapprove of us because we are new creations in Christ Jesus. He never holds our sins and failures against us. We are always declared to be innocent in the eyes of God. That doesn't mean we don't mess up from time to time. God doesn't always approve of what we do. But he always and forever approves of our who. <laughs> who we are in him, the real us. And because Jesus took the sin of all mankind into death, where it belongs, there is therefore no condemnation, no condemnation, no disapproval, no strong expression of being disapproved of by our Father. We have no condemnation for those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. In other words, our Father will never sentence us to spiritual death, never, which is the appropriate penalty for sin. And he will never express any kind of strong or vehement expression of disapproving of who we are in our new creation identity. Don't get me wrong. God absolutely hates and detests sin, all sin. Big sins, little sins, all the sins. He hates them all. But that's only because sin hurts and destroys the lives of the human beings he loves. Sin is actually self-punishing. The punishment is built in. <laughs> and that's because sin bears fruit. It's the law of sowing and reaping. Sin will eventually destroy whatever it touches if left unchecked. But it can never destroy the indwelling power and presence of our Lord Jesus Christ or our new creation identity. So our Heavenly Father didn't come to us through the Lord Jesus Christ so that he could strongly disapprove of who we are <laughs> and then reject and condemn us. God has already accepted everyone in and through his beloved son. But God doesn't go around forcing people to receive his gift of grace and love. Every person must decide for themselves if they want to partake of God's absolutely free loving kindness through faith. We can see the power of God's approval and acceptance in the life of a sinful man in the story of Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. Before I begin reading, let me give you some background information. This encounter with Jesus happens shortly after Jesus heals blind Bartimaeus. It could have been just a few hours or just a few days. But how excited would everyone be when they heard about this amazing miracle? So Jesus had crowds of people following after him to hear him teach and to watch him heal. So getting close to Jesus wasn't going to be easy. And that's where we find 
Zacchaeus, trying to get close to Jesus. Beginning in verse 1. He entered Jericho and was passing through. Jericho was a very prosperous place at that time in history. And that means the people who lived there were basically doing pretty good for themselves. Except for the taxes. Verse 2. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. And he was a chief tax collector and he was rich. He was the head tax collector, which means he was in charge of all the other tax collectors who were all scoundrels. <laughs> tax collectors were treated like traitors because they were. They would demand tax at any time and on anything as they pleased. It wasn't like everyone paid a certain amount of tax every year and they came to collect it. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> Whenever they would see you on the street, they would tax what you had. They were extortioners. And they had help from the Roman government. So it didn't matter where they go. If they saw you, what do you got? I'm going to tax you on it. It wasn't legitimate. It was extortion. <laughs> so to say that the Jewish people hated and despised tax collectors would be an understatement. They really despised these people to the nth degree. As much as 80 or 90% of your income would be taken by these tax collectors because they could collect tax anytime they wanted. So yeah, they were mad. Verse 3. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. In other words, he had short legs. <laughs> and he couldn't see over the top of the crowd. <laughs> Verse 4. So he ran on ahead and climbed up in a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus! Hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Now this would have stunned everyone, including Zacchaeus. <laughs> the scripture just told us Zacchaeus didn't know Jesus. But Jesus knew Zacchaeus. And then Jesus openly honored Zacchaeus by inviting himself to his house. In those days, if a rabbi came to your house, oh, you were somebody special. <laughs> and not only is he inviting himself to his house, but he's doing it in front of everybody who knows that this is a scoundrel to the nth degree. What are you doing? <laughs> you see, everybody hated Zacchaeus, but not Jesus. Yes, Jesus absolutely hated and disapproved of what Zacchaeus had done, but Zacchaeus was still one of the solo. Jesus didn't come to reject and disapprove and condemn Zacchaeus. He came to convince him that the Father still wanted him in his family. Jesus wanted to convince him that he hadn't outsinned the loving kindness and mercy of God. Jesus didn't have to openly condemn Zacchaeus. His own heart and conscience would have been doing a very nice job. You see, that's what we would expect, right? A preacher of righteousness? All right, all you dirty, run scoundrels! We're going to have an altar call! <laughs> all y'all get yourself down here! <laughs> that's not what he did. Jesus treated him with honor. Did his work deserve honor? No. 
but the so loved deserve to be honored and recognized by God. Verse six, so he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Zacchaeus's mind must have been filled with thoughts like, what? <laughs> he wants me? He picked me? He invited me to dine with him? Me, the chief tax collector? How crazy is that? And of course, it's not all, all that crazy in the light of Revelations 3.20, which says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if any man hear my voice, not the voice of guilt, not the voice of shame, not the voice of condemnation. If any man hear my voice, my voice of love and mercy and grace, if any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. His voice, not the voice of the shame that comes from our conscience, not the voice of condemnation that you deserve to not be honored. Not the voice of fear that threatens all the bad things God wants to do to you. Not the voice of guilt. Not the voice of condemnation. You see, <laughs> guilt leads you to shame. Shame leads you to condemnation. I deserve to be punished. And that leads you to fear. Oh my God, how bad is the punishment going to be? <laughs> It's the fear that God is mad and handing out punishment. And I lived that way as a Christian for years. Because I knew God loved me just like when I was a kid. Yeah, I know mom and dad love me. I just don't think they like me very much. <laughs> as an adult Christian, I knew God loved me, but I thought he was always mad at my imperfection. Why can't you get it right? What? Again? You fell down again? Aren't you tired of being dirty? Aren't you tired of me turning my back on you? Aren't you tired of all this yet? Yes, I was. You see, none of those terrible voices of guilt and shame and condemnation and fear led Zacchaeus to salvation. None of them. Hearing the voice of God's love Experiencing God's acceptance and approval was what opened Zacchaeus's already condemned heart to be able to believe, God wants me. God loves me. God wants to dine with me. How crazy wonderful is that? Verse 7. And when they saw, uh-oh, the they's, <laughs> they grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Religion does not like or understand grace. And if they don't like and understand grace, they don't like and understand God. Verse 8. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. What is this? This is the guilt offering. He took responsibility for his actions and wanted to make things right. Not in order to get Jesus to accept him, but because he realized Jesus already did accept him. 
He didn't have to do anything to get Jesus to accept him. It was all Jesus' idea. <laughs> Grace doesn't force believers to make amends. It makes believers want to make amends. Verse 9. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. I think Jesus was talking about Zacchaeus' faith, apprehending God's grace. Abraham is the father of faith, and those who believe on Jesus and the Father's loving kindness through him are called sons of Abraham. That's because they enter into relationship not by their works, but by their faith in a God who loves them, wants them, and has picked them on purpose to be in his family. Basically, Jesus asked Zacchaeus, Do you hear what I hear? Do you hear the heartbeat of the Father in heaven who loves you just because you're his? Zacchaeus, do you know what I know? I know that God's grace is greater than all your sins. Zacchaeus, do you see what I see? I see all the power of sin and death crucified in the body of the Son of God. Zacchaeus, do you hear what I hear? I hear the peaceful silence of a heart at rest and a conscience cleansed. A heart that knows how loved they are. I hear the peaceful silence of a heart at rest and a conscience cleansed. A heart that knows how loved they are, how wanted they are, and how free they are. The voices of guilt and shame and condemnation and fear have all been silenced by the precious blood of the Lamb of God. So, dear friends, I ask you this morning, do you hear what I hear? Do you hear the voice of God himself speaking to you through the Holy Spirit in your thoughts and in your unction and in his word? Do you hear the knowings and the promptings of the Holy Spirit within you to lead and guide you into all the truth? Not your conscience, Holy Spirit. Or do you hear your conscience telling you that you're guilty? You're a sinner. God is mad at you. You're such a failure. These are the voices of our human conscience, the voices of guilt, shame, condemnation, and fear. And they cannot be trusted to be your guide. Only Christ himself only Holy Spirit, only your Heavenly Father can provide the silence of a clean and cleansed conscience, which brings us into that place of peace and rest. Peace between God and man was announced 2,000 years ago, but the church is still telling the world he's mad. It came in the form of a baby born in a manger and wrapped in swaddling clothes. He was named Emmanuel. God with us. And it is through his perfect life and death and burial and resurrection that he has secured our eternal redemption and brought us peace. Jesus is our true and lasting peace. Amen? Father God, we thank you for the truth of your word, that you are love, that you do approve of us, even if we're still doing things wrong. You still want us 
to be one with you, to live in your presence, to always live in your presence. Father God, I thank you for the truth. You find no fault in us. Yes, you may find fault with things we do, but you find no fault in us because we look just like Jesus because we're one with him. You're never, you're never mad. You never tell us we're guilty, but you're happy to correct us for our own good. Father God, I thank you that you are amazing, that you are grace, that you are life, that you are peace. And I thank you, Father God, for the power of the blood of Jesus that cleanses our consciences and our hearts. We thank you, Father God, for the, the life, death, and burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Father God, that you chose to come to us. Obviously, you couldn't have been too mad if you chose to come to us and be just like us so that we could become just like you. We thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.